Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning. To all those of you who are at home, good morning to you as well. Um, I introduced myself at the beginning, but if you've tuned in since then, uh, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here, and I'm glad to be with you all. Would you all pray with me as we get started? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for inviting us into your presence this morning. On that day when Jesus cleansed the temple, no one expected to Jesus to do what he was going to do. No one asked him to do it. He just did it. And it was messy. And it was disruptive, but it was an act of grace. It was such a beautiful thing. God, we want to open ourselves up to that this morning. Heavenly Father, teach us to connect your discipline to your Father's heart. Lord, teach us to connect your discipline and your purifying love to our belovedness in you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but my neighborhood has been bustling with uh, more life in the past week than it has in the past three or four months or so. Uh, And that's because the snow is melting. Hallelujah. Praise God. Um, Aslan's on the move, as we say. Uh, There was like 12 days of negative temperatures in the beginning of February, and now in March, uh, the spell is breaking in a way. And while we rejoice at this, um, one of the bummers of the snow melting, uh, which there's not many, but one of them is that I am reminded how much work I have to do on my house and on my lawn, which is genuinely a bummer. Um, The snow and the winter are severe, but they do have this way of basically just covering everything up and deep freezing it for like four months, and it's under all this snow, and it's great. In other seasons of life, on Saturdays, I'm working for hours outside, fixing stuff on my house, mowing my lawn, gardening. Um, And there's a lot in my property that is imperfect. Uh, But when the winter comes, it just kind of goes away. It just goes under the snow, and it's fantastic, and you don't have to deal with it. All the stuff you need to do in your house during the winter um, doesn't go away. It just kind of goes hidden. Things still need fixing. The creeping Charlie, the weed that is taking over my lawn, is still there, but it was just under the snow. My garage in the winter just gets cluttered with all this junk, and I don't touch it until it gets nice, and I open up my garage, and I'm like, oh, gosh. Just wasn't the right time to do it. But then the spring comes, and it's time. Spring cleaning, which is a thing, kicks into gear. You roll up your sleeves. If you have a Bible, and if, you, if you're at home, please grab a Bible, because I'd love for us to work through this together. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. This is not in your bulletin. I'm sorry we didn't print it in your bulletin. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. I'll just read it out loud. But I'm going to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. I've been studying the book of Hebrews just in my personal Bible reading this week. And there was a verse, and really a phrase in a verse, that really stuck out to me this week. To give you some context while you're getting there, Hebrews chapter 9, um, this is, in this part of the book, the author of Hebrews is showing how all the stuff in the Old Testament, like the temple and the sacrificial system and the order of the priests and everything, were never meant to be the end goal of God's story with humanity. But rather, uh, Hebrews says, like shadows or placeholders, they were there to point to Christ 
the one who would come one day to be, as we see in Jesus's life, the real temple, the real sacrifice, the real priest, all this awesome stuff. So with that in mind, would you look with me at chapter 9, verse 9? And I'm going to start kind of in the sentence that picks up in the middle of the verse. It says this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. It's talking about all this stuff in the Old Testament that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Until the time of reformation. That was the phrase that stuck out to me. Because I've never noticed that word before, reformation, in Scripture. And come to find out, this is actually the only place in the Bible that that word is used. Some of your Bibles, if it's a different translation than mine, it might say, until the time of new order. Which sounds amazing uh, for a lot of reasons. Like the 80s electronic band or something from Star Wars. Um, But until the time of Reformation. Hebrews is saying that the temple, God's house, all the sacrifices, all the way the worship was set up, um, was all set up until... In God's wisdom, it was time to reform it. Until it was time for spring cleaning, time to open up the garage and get to work. And this, brothers and sisters, is exactly what is happening in John chapter 2 in the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple is a picture of spring cleaning. It's quite literally a story about God in Jesus Christ, coming to his house, rolling up his sleeves, and getting to work. It's a vignette of the reformation that Hebrews is talking about. So what happens in the story? Well, Jesus comes to the temple, which he speaks of as his father's house. That word house is really one of the central words in this whole story. And he notices it's cluttered. It's dirty. And the backstory to this, uh, kind of the issue in John 2, is that it had become a marketplace instead of a place of prayer. So there was an industry that had grown up around the sacrificial system. Um, everybody had to give this temple tax, which wasn't a bad thing. Somebody asked Jesus, hey, do you pay the temple tax? And he says, yeah, I do. So it wasn't a bad thing, but you had to have a certain type of coin to pay the tax, and so you needed one of those little kiosks that you have in the airports in other countries where you exchange money, is what that was, basically. You had to offer sacrifices, but it had to be the right sacrifice, and so there was all these animals, so you could buy the right animal to offer in the temple. And it was this industry that had basically grown up and spilled into the temple itself, the place of worship. So think about like hot dog stands and the gift shop at a like ballpark getting so huge that it grows onto the field itself where people are playing baseball. That's a ridiculous analogy, but it's kind of similar to what's going on here. The guys in the temple courts are not necessarily evil or bad. They were just part of this decay and devolution that had happened in the life of the temple, of the church. Not the church, we're getting there, of the temple. I'm showing my cards too soon. Um, The industry had crowded out the piety, Jesus is saying. The business of the temple was overpowering the worship of the temple. And when Jesus sees it, we're told it makes him feel things. 
his chest gets hot. Because Jesus loves, loves his father's house. We only get one story of Jesus in between his time as an infant and all the Christmas narratives and when he's age 30. And you know what he's doing? He's in his father's house. And he says, don't you know I'd be in my father's house about my father's business? He loves his father's house. And so his love for the temple and his anger about what's happening mixes together in the form of zeal. And it drives him to action, to reformation. This is one of Jesus's great Chuck Norris moments in all of the Bible. He drives out the animals, flips over the tables, and in so doing, cleanses the temple and disrupts an entire industry. There's so much going on in this passage. But then what he says is just as important as what he does. And I'd like you to flip to John 2 now, if you can, or in your bulletin. What page is it in your bulletin? Page 7, it's on your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. Look at verse 18 with me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? In other words, hey man, what in the world? Like, who are you to do all this stuff? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is saying here that driving out animals and flipping tables wasn't the whole story. He was going to take it further. Somehow through his death and resurrection, which is what he's referring to, he was going to set up a new order. And really, all of the book of Hebrews is unpacking that one small phrase, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Okay, so we've got this analogy of spring cleaning, this experience that we're having right now in Wisconsin in March. We've got this weighty, beautiful word from the book of Hebrews, reformation, with all its weight, and we've got its connection to this little vignette where Jesus lives out this idea, this story. What do we do with this? How does this apply to us? This has been my question and my prayer this week. And as I've prayed through it and studied these things, I just realized how timely this story is for our moment right now as the church in Lent 2021. Because I think in 2020, we discovered that our church's garage was pretty cluttered, if you will. The church, as the body of Christ, is the household of God. The church is God's house. That's why everything, all the language and our mission, a community coming home to Jesus and his church revolves around the house. This is God's house. The New Testament also says that we, our bodies as parts of God's house are also temples. So this is all about us. This story is about you. It's about Christ Church Madison. It's about the church in Madison and the church in America and the world. And in the past year, like I said, I think some cultural and maybe spiritual snow melted and things were kind of dirty. There's been a lot that has been crowding out our piety and our worship in the church that has, I think, been manifested. Our world is fractured. We've seen how our church is also fractured. And so I think most of us agree that now, to use the phrase from Hebrews, is the time for reformation. Amen? 
Now is the time for reformation. We all agree on that. What we don't agree on is what that means. <laughs> what are we reforming from? What are we reforming to? Who gets to say? We actually have a lot of disagreement about that. So what I want to do this morning is allow these scriptures to teach us how to navigate this idea of reformation. How to lean into our own spring cleaning, both in the church as a whole and as individuals. Um, sometimes I don't finish my sermon until Saturday. If I could retitle this, it would be reforming with Jesus just as much as it would be cleaning with Jesus, but they were already printed, so whatever. Um, all right, two points and two points that come out of this in terms of teaching us how to relate to the idea of reformation. And really the second point has three sub points just to make it complicated on you. Okay. Here's the first point that I think we see out of this passage when it comes to reforming and spring cleaning. Number one, the church is always reforming. The church is always reforming. There's a famous Latin phrase that has been used in the church for centuries, which is semper reformanda. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing my Latin right. We have a lot of geeks in our church, but you get it. Semper reformanda, and it means always reforming. Just as Semper Fi, always faithful, always loyal, has been the central cry of the U.S. Marines, so Semper Reformanda has long been the cry of the Reformed Protestant Church, dating back to the 1600s. And for those of you that care, even the Roman Catholic Church leaned into this idea during Vatican II in the 1960s. So this is actually a, a piece of, that's been a part of the church, this idea, for a long, long, long time. And basically, the idea is that we perpetually need to be cleaning God's house. This is an ongoing thing. Just as creeping Charlie, the weed in my lawn continues to creep, and I continue to fight it, so we constantly are called to this perpetual self-examination as a church. Now, you might be asking, where are you getting that from John 2 and the cleansing of the temple? And that's a great question. Um, one of the unique things about the cleansing of the temple in John is where it comes in the story. If you have your Bible, you'll notice it comes right at the beginning, in the end of chapter 2. The only other public thing Jesus does before this is the wedding at Cana. So it's, it's right at the beginning. It's a part of the prologue. And yet, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his life. It's actually during Holy Week, the last week of his life. And so there's some debate, man, what's going on here? Are people just mixing up the chronology or what's the deal? Um, and there is debate about this, but Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and almost all the biblical scholars who are alive right now that I respect don't think that this was just the gospel writers mixing up when this happened, but that a similar event happened twice. And why should that shock us? Your garage has never been cluttered more than once, right? You've never done the same sin more than one time, right? Of course. We have a propensity to continue to clutter things that have been cleaned before. So why would this not happen with God's household? And so the church is always reforming. Semper reformanda. In every season of life, we need Jesus to come home and clean up to grab his whip of cords, to drive out whatever is decaying and devolving God's house. 
We're never static. We're always seeking to become more like Jesus. And that means, brothers and sisters, that now is the time for reformation. Right now is a time to clean, is a time to attend with Jesus to his house. There's a lot of things we could say about this, but I think ones that are glaring to all of us. How many Christian leaders in the past year or two have we tragically seen disqualified from office for moral failures or from arrogance? Um, If you've been a Christian, many of us have not been a Christian for long, but if you've been a Christian for a while, my hunch is you've been deeply affected or hurt by at least one of these stories. And I know that because I talked to many of you about this. How many abuse scandals have been uncovered? How many cases of institutional misogyny have been uncovered? What's crept into the temple in order to make that possible? Industries that have come in to crowd out the worship of God. Likewise, some folks from our church attended the Kingdom Justice Summit last week, which is a thing that everybody in Madison gets together to do, the the churches. It's an amazing event. Loved going to it. Even though it was on Zoom this year, it was really rich. And uh, in the Kingdom Justice Summit, we heard from multiple African-American leaders in our city, from different pastors and leaders of different organizations. And man, I was convicted, as I always am, whenever I hear our black brothers and sisters speak about how much racial clutter is in the garage of the church. How many racial barriers still exist in the household of God? In the Bible, one of the hallmarks of the old order in the old systems of worship in the temple was that there were literally barriers between different ethnicities and genders. And so uh, there was only certain places that people could go depending on who you were. And so literally there was like the court of the Gentiles or the court of women. And one of the things the New Testament expressly says is that what Jesus accomplishes in his reformation, in his body, is he actually tears down those barriers So if you're familiar with the Bible, a big portion of the book of Hebrews is specifically talking about that ministry that Jesus did, which is really cool. And yet, here we are. We're still racially divided, not just in our city. Um, We are in Madison, but also in the church. And this is a lot of what at the King Justice Summit I was hearing and what our brothers and sisters were preaching into prophetically. And it hit me right in the gut. So to speak to our white brothers and sisters right now in our church, we have a lot of cleaning up to do. What Jesus did was disruptive. It was messy, but it was so beautiful. It was so good. So that's number one. The church is always reforming. Amen? A virtue of a healthy church community is that we are always open to Jesus flipping tables. I know that sounds weird, but we learn to love it. Later on in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how the father disciplines those he loves. Jesus was not being cruel. He was being zealous and jealous over his beloved. So we love it. We invite God to clean. We love spring cleaning. But we need to keep drilling down because if we leave it there, um, we can still feel like a wave tossed around by our politics and culture wars and everything else. We all agree on reformation, but that word might even like trigger something in you. They're like, oh, like people might use that to do weird stuff. So we agree it needs to happen. We agree that we should continually keep on doing it. But what does that look like? What is our compass 
in a world of so many opinions about what needs to happen to the church. I hope maybe you feel that same question as well. And that leads us to the second point. And again, it's really a point with three subpoints. Um, that is this. The first is the church is always reforming. The second point is the church is always reformed by Jesus, through Jesus, and to Jesus. Let me say that again. The church is always reformed by Jesus, through Jesus, and to Jesus. To begin, what does it mean to be reformed by Jesus? Well, it means that he decides what it is, and he defines what it is. If you came home to your house one day after work, you open the door, and you find me in your apartment ripping up carpet, demoing a wall, like painting a wall orange, and like putting in some new weird light, how would you feel about that? <laughs> you would not appreciate that. First of all, because I'm not handy and I'm bad at interior design. Uh, but second of all, it's not my house, it's your house. You'd be crazy. In fact, you might be filled with righteous zeal that I was turning your house into something that it was never supposed to be. The church is Jesus' house. Our bodies are Jesus' house. And so, like John 2, he's the one who leads the cleaning. He initiates it. It's his. So whenever we get to these times of spring cleaning, we look to him. And when we look elsewhere is when we get into trouble. And typically, I find the two main ditches that we fall into is either by looking to the past to figure out what needs to happen to the church, or by looking to our present culture to see what needs to happen to the church. And whether you are more conservatively or progressively inclined often will dictate what ditch you fall into. The conservative impulse is that the problem is that something has been forgotten or lost. So, for instance, the... We, we'd say the problem with kids these days, they've just forgotten fundamental moral and intellectual virtues, you know? They've lost the faith of their fathers and mothers. We've got to go back. We've got to restore what has been lost. And so reformation for a conservative is a going back. It's a recovery. The progressive impulse is to think that the problem is that we are being held back by the past, by outdated stuff. So, for instance... We'd say the problem with kids these days is that they're suffering under these antiquated values and they need to be freed because the past was great for some people, but it was not great for all people. And so reformation for a progressive is a going forward. It's a liberation. Now, what's amazing about the ministry of Jesus is that it was both restorative and revolutionary at the exact same time. This is the secret sauce of the gospel uh, that you can find nowhere else. Jesus was utterly and deeply connected to the past. He was the God of creation. Part of his ministry was, but from the beginning it was not so. While at the same time, he was utterly groundbreaking and revolutionary. And just to give you one example, think about the cleansing of the temple. On the one hand, Jesus cleans up the temple to what it always should have been. When he says his father's house should be a house of prayer and not a house of trade, that wasn't a revolutionary idea. If you go to Deuteronomy or Exodus, you're not going to find the verse that says, and I long for my house to be a house of trade. Okay? It said the opposite. 
Jesus was just being a faithful Jew. So when he cleaned, he was restoring. He was reminding the people something that they had forgotten he was going back. While at the same time, he goes on to say the crazy thing about destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That was new. That was revolutionary. That was proof that Jesus had not come to simply go back. He'd come to kickstart a new order. Utterly still connected and faithful, fulfilling the Old Testament, but he was moving forward. New wine, he says, in new wineskins. So, both the conservative and progressive impulses are good and true. But left by themselves, they're just impartial. So we mess up when they become our compass overall. The conservative ditch is to think that we just need to recreate the 50s or the 19th century or the monastic movement or the early church. There are riches in all those periods of history, but there's also brokenness in all those periods of history. The goal of Christianity is not to recreate the past. The liberal ditch is to think that wherever our current culture is going is where our church needs to be reforming. It's like if UW changes its mind on something and thinks something, then we have to as well in order to be relevant. But that's a problem too. Like the past, there's so many things in our culture today that can and should be utterly listened to and affirmed. While at the same time, there's a lot of brokenness. Reformation is never defined by our present culture, ever. What it is defined by is the Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus. He defines it. Amen? He's the master of the house. It's defined by his word. Scripture in this way is therefore both the driver of reformation and the governor of reformation, if that makes any sense. If we're pushing to change or recover something in the church that's not in God's word, then that's not reformation. That's just creeping Charlie. It needs to be weeded and pulled. Likewise, if we discover something that's in God's word that's not in our church, then we've got a problem and we've got to roll up our sleeves. This is what happens in the reformation of Josiah in the Old Testament. They found the law and opened it up and we're like, oh my gosh, we're supposed to be doing all kinds of stuff we're not doing. And if I'm honest, this is what I hear when I hear our black brothers and sisters speaking Oh my gosh, there's all this beautiful work of the gospel that actually isn't that present in my life and I want it to be. That's a good reason for reformation, but it's driven by God's word. It's defined by the master of the house himself. So what do we do? How do we navigate this? We soak ourselves in God's word. We immerse ourselves in the life of the faithful church where Jesus speaks in his body and we pray, Lord, this is your house the church is yours. My body is yours. You purchased it through your suffering. You paid the price for it with your blood. You've given me your body sacrificially and completely in return. What do you want to do with it? Clean it out. The church is always reforming by Jesus. And then my second sub point to this point is it's always reformed through Jesus. Um, in this story, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus ends up focusing on his body when nobody was and nobody understood what he was talking about. He doesn't 
really go in. They're like, ask him why he's doing things. He doesn't say like, well, I know what's happening with all this industry and here's why. Like you don't get him speaking into that much. He just pivots in a way that doesn't really make sense to anyone there to talk about his death and his resurrection. It's kind of bizarre. And that's because it was only through Good Friday and Easter that the real and lasting change came. It was only through Jesus' death that he truly was able to clean out the gunk. To take out your gunk. That's why we love Good Fridays. He takes all of our impurities, all of our uncleanliness, and he gets it out of his house. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. It's amazing. It was only through his resurrection that he was able to build and pave the way forward. So if we're longing for some spring cleaning in our lives and in the church, it's not going to happen through do-goodery. Uh, we've, we've worked at speaking into this throughout Lent. This is not just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Reformation happens from becoming more deeply united in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. Amen? So that's why it's awesome. We always read this story on our way to Holy Week. It's really cool. Finally, the church is always reforming to Jesus. Where are we going as a church? What are we working towards? What's the goal here? We're not trying to look like our culture as much as we love our culture. We're not trying to look like the past as much as we love history and the past and the richness of all eras of history. Our goal as the body of Christ is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We reform to conform, if that makes any sense. There's a lot of other stuff we could be conforming to. We're not doing that. We're being conformed to Jesus. He's the destination. He's the shape we want to take on. He's what we are building, being built up into, the Bible says. The image of Jesus on earth. And this, brothers and sisters, is why the church is so precious to Jesus and why it's so precious to us. This is why Jesus is filled with such zeal because we are called to embody God and reflect God and speak the words of God to a world that is suffering. And that's why, as the Bible says, it's important. The church is really important. And judgment begins with the household of God. We don't want to let the church get cluttered. So the church is always reforming. And the church is always reformed by Jesus, through Jesus, and to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we pray for our church and for the world. Lord, as we're going to pray later on at the table, Lord, we, we invite you to come into your house. This is your house. Part of our worship this morning as a collective body is in one spirit together saying to you, we are your house. It's yours. You purchased it. We want you to do with it what you want to do with it. Lord, clean up anything that needs to be cleaned up. Protect the unity of the church. Guard its faithfulness, Lord. 
Show us the way. 2020 has been confusing, but we long to further be conformed to the image of your son. And all God's people said, amen.